0: Any time a season is coming to change, it gives the opportunity to reflect. Now I don't know about you, but I usually start to make some personal goals primarily as it approaches summer. I like summer. Summer is my favorite season of the year. I like the warmth. I like the sunshine. And Pastor Banks knows when summer is coming because there is this unique sound that begins to echo in the hallways of the office when summer has approached. And I wanted to share a little bit about what that experience is like for Pastor Banks and demonstrate that. So if you listen real quietly and are really observant, you might pick up on what I'm referencing. It's a lot harder on carpet stage, but it's my flip-flops. They go flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop. I think it's actually a big... Like, this is where our English language did us right. A flip-flop sounds and acts exactly like what we've called it, a flip-flop. There are many confusing things in the English language, but flip-flop is not one of those. And I just love flip-flops. Flip-flops remind me about the warmth, the sunshine, the summer, the outdoors. Even my feet get excited as I anticipate summer. But, you know, the reality is there are many situations we will go through in life that flip-flops and sunny days aren't sufficient to encourage us through them. They're not sufficient to bring the joy, the depth of the joy we need to get through those seasons. You see, one of my personal goals this summer was not just to wear flip-flops, but it was also to read through the book of Job. And initially, when you think about the book of Job, if you've read through it, if if you've heard others teach on it, it's not one of those books that probably bring this initial sense of excitement and joy like warm, sunny summer days. But it is in this book of Job that we find certain content that is sufficient to address the difficulties that life might throw to us. And so where there are certain circumstantial superficial things that can often bring us joy when we're going through challenges we need something more substantial something that can encourage hope and joy in the midst of the various dark clouds that we might experience in our life and so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning and as i considered this time together and and what helped me enjoy working through job over the summer, there are a couple observations or or encouragements I would give to those who would read a book like Job or other wisdom literature that might be more difficult and require more discipline to work through. The first of that is that I think Scripture overall is more beneficial when you're continually reading through the entire Bible. Scripture helps to add meaning and explanation to other passages of Scripture. So if you're only limiting yourself to the Gospels, or to Paul's letters, or to Proverbs, or to Psalms, or to Genesis, you're not getting the whole counsel of God's word. And so as I worked through the book of Job, I found that various other passages or even character in Scripture helped the book of Job come to life, helped me appreciate it to a greater extent and understand perhaps some of the truths and the purposes, the lessons God was hoping to communicate in the book. Another thing I realized as I worked through the book of Job, and this could be an encouragement, any books you're working through, is don't rush it. Job was a book I had to often pause, think about, reread, reflect on, and ponder, chew on it for a little while to really gain and understand what was happening. In fact, to take it one step further, it is good to consider how would these truths start to change the way I think? start to change the way I even feel about my circumstances, change the way I act. Understanding and experiencing God in the way that Job did changes our lives. Job was not the same person at the end of the book that he was even at the beginning of the book. And this is really marvelous because at the beginning of the book and what we're going to look at in chapter 1 here is he's elevated pretty highly, All right, But he's a different person at the end of the book. And if you'll be patient with me, I'll I'll try to progress through this somewhat quickly. Uh, Flip-flops are not the only thing I could be accused of. I can also be accused of uh, dreaming too big and having too great of aspirations and then being reminded in reality that uh, we've got about 30 minutes. (laughs) And so I'm going to try to progress through this, and I would ask for your patience and for your attentiveness as we look at the book of Job. One thing to consider, as I mentioned a little earlier, is that the book of Job is considered wisdom literature, and while we don't know the exact date and time that was written or even who wrote the book of Job, uh, based upon some of the information in the book, we imagine it was probably during the patriarchs, after the flood, uh, and during the time of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, sometime in about uh, that timeline of, uh, of history. And as we look at this, there are, I, I found helpful, I'll sometimes look at, does anyone in the New Testament reference the Old Testament, or is this character or book referenced anywhere else in Scripture? And uh, it's referenced in James, James 5 references, and used Job as an example of being steadfast in faith. Also, though, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel references Job, and he compares Job's righteousness to that of Noah and that of Daniel. We know those characters pretty well. I mean, think about Noah was considered the only one righteous, and he was the only one saved when God flooded the world. That would be pretty righteous in my books. And Daniel, who stood against an entire empire in order to remain faithful to his Lord, that's a pretty good demonstration of righteousness. So let's, let's look at Job 1, and we're going to start off by examining at least the three main characters in this chapter, and then also looking at this test or trial that Job finds himself. So I'll be reading from Job 1, and let's go through the first five verses and then kind of pause and reflect on those and and then uh, consider what God has to teach us. So Job 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So this first trial that we're going to look at involves the loss of possessions and the loss of relationships. But before we get to that section, I want us to make a few observations about the character of Job, particularly what we've read here in the first five verses. So what, what are a few things we could conclude about Job's character? Well, I think first and foremost and pretty clearly indicated here is that his character is on display. Job was a man of character who was known by his faithfulness to God. In fact, that term blameless that is used to describe him there in verse 1 is very similar to the characteristics God expects of an elder in the New Testament in the church to serve. And that doesn't give the idea of perfection. Job wasn't perfect, just like pastors aren't perfect. But it does give the indication that there wasn't any outstanding or undealt with sin or offenses that have not been forgiven or processed. And so blamelessness. In the sight of a man of character upright is another description they use the fear of god that we've already referenced today and the criticalness of it and then also that he turned away from evil all of these are things in that first verse that identify his character in fact when we looked at verse 5 we saw that he also prioritized and practiced spiritual disciplines this is before the mosaic law has been given before the temple or the tabernacle is put in place Job is considered to be a man who worshiped God and he rises early in the morning. You notice that? Important things we usually do first, right? We prioritize that because we don't want to miss out on it. One of the only places we don't do this right is with our meals, right? We save dessert for end. We don't properly prioritize dessert and start with it and then work through and leave your vegetables. No, I see Bob there. Bob says starts with the vegetables. They're better. All right, so this is our spiritual vegetables, all right, that we're looking at and we're focused on. But Job rose early in the morning. In fact, I believe Job's love for his children moved him to worship God. Think about that. The ones you love the most, what do you do in consideration for them? Do you bring them before the Lord? That's what Job does. And that testifies to Job seeing the value and importance of of the role God played in his life. He took those who were precious to him and he brought them before God. One other phrase that I thought was really interesting here is, is in verse three, it says that he was the greatest of all the people in the East, of everyone. This isn't a popularity contest. This isn't a poll, you know, it's not like a political poll or, or a, uh, uh, um, an actor's poll who's the most famous person in Hollywood. This is God saying, Job was the greatest in the East. We read about all of his possessions, his children, how he'd been blessed. In fact, in verse 8, that we'll get to in a minute, it says, God says that there was none like Job. He stood out for the right reasons. You know, we can often stand out for the wrong reasons. If you've ever watched the the movie Rudolph, there's an island of misfit toys, right? They stand out because they're misfits. Job was a misfit in a very positive way. There were none like him. He was the greatest among the East. Job stood out for his character as one who was blameless, upright, who feared God and turned from evil. Now, this chapter progresses and we're going to be looking now at what can we learn about God. In verse 6, we'll read through verse 6 and all the way through 12. And from these two sections, we'll start to draw some conclusions both about God as well as about Satan. Follow along as I read in verse 6. Now there was a day when the Son of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro and on the earth and from walking up and down and on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Let's just pause there actually for a minute. What, what has already stood out to you in just reading this scenario? You know, one, one of the first things might be, well, who's the sons of God? W- most people believe those are the angels, but isn't it kind of interesting? I mean, I kind of envision this scene unfolding like a conference room meeting. All right, God is calling a conference, and the angels make their appearance, and who else is present and has to give an account to God? Satan. Satan is called there, and he has to give an account to God, and it's God who initiates the agenda, and the plan. Satan's not coming to God with his requests, with his ideas, with his suggestions. God is calling them and initiating this meeting and this agenda. He is clearly the boss in the room and clearly in control of the situation and he leaves with a few questions and i thought with these questions it was really interesting because i don't think god was asking these questions kind of like an employer might ask the employees like hey what's the quarter how did we end up with the quarter Or what are we doing over here what are we doing over there because they want to gain information god's asking these questions much like we observe jesus ask questions in his earthly ministry to tra- challenge us to consider and learn. This is for our edification, our growth, not that God needs to learn something. And these questions are interesting. He first asks Satan, uh, where have you been or where have you come from? And then he follows that question up with uh, with regarding a question directed towards Job. You know, I was familiar with this book, but I hadn't quite, for some reason in my mind, I'd always imagined Satan brought up the topic of Job. And I think part of that was because I had wrestled with, why would God point out Job and draw attention to Job if he's doing so well? You know, usually we draw attention to the problem child, right? Like there's this individual or that individual. But why would God initiate this attention to bring about a test and trial for Job when he's been doing so well? And so it's a little hard for me to swallow or accept that, and I think in my own flesh, I'd always imagine Satan was bringing the attention to. But it's very clear here that God initiates the questions and asks if he considers and repeats these characters' traits, you know, that he's upright, blameless, fear of God, and even that there are none like him. And so he was asking these questions as an opportunity to teach others not to gain personal understanding. God brings Satan's attention to Job, Satan does not come to God with an agenda to test Job. Instead, it is God who sets in motion the agenda to test Job. And I think the conclusion we can make about what are we learning about God in these verses is that God is in control. He is sovereign over all of creation, hum- humanity, the angels, and Satan himself, and he is orchestrating these events for a purpose that we're going to continue to unfold this morning. And this is a common theme we th- see throughout Scripture. God is supreme. He is ruler. We see this in Isaiah. We see this in the New Testament, in the Romans 14. It says, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess to God. All right? The world, all of creation, will acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior and acknowledge the authority of God. So God, also we'll see in verse 12, I'll go ahead and read verse 9 through 12, but it's God who sets the parameters for Job. Job doesn't get to pick the parameters. It's God who sets them. So let's pick up in verse 9. and Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what are some observations we can make about Satan? Well, first of all, we can see that Satan appears to have a level of freedom to roam the world. He is roaming and God inquires on where has he been. He's been out roaming over the earth. We also notice that Satan acknowledges God's authority. You ever seen a toddler resist authority? Right? You ask them to do something, you ask them to say something, and they don't do it. Satan responds to God's questions. All right? Satan responds. When God calls an audience, Satan comes and and responds and is accountable to God. Satan is also true to his nature as the great accuser and deceiver. Verse 9, does Job fear God for no reason? Doesn't that remind you a little bit about the account in Genesis when Satan is talking to Eve? said so will you surely die you know you notice that theme that question that trying to doubt and the accusation ultimately attacking the very character of God and we'll see that right here the value of God is attacked by Satan you see Satan is ignorant and is in disbelief not that God exists not that God is powerful he disbelieves that God is ultimately good and worthy of worship and he believes that Job will not worship God if God removes all of the blessings from Job's life. And so this is what Satan is believing. Job will curse God. That's his plan. You just wait, God, and you just see. If I remove, if you remove these blessings, he will curse you. But what Satan is unaware of is that he is unintentionally serving God's purpose. Satan cannot do anything other than serve, ultimately, the purpose of God of God as much as he resists as much as he rebels as much as he doesn't want to we will observe that through this chapter Satan serves God's purpose but maybe we should ask our question a question of what is God's purpose in this and and I want you to be thinking about that as we go through this chapter what is God hoping to accomplish by turning Job's possessions over to Satan or maybe another thing to consider is often our trials are intended to teach us about god's goodness and his sovereignty and maybe we can see signs of that you see job's trial is intended to bring glory to god and joy to job the suffering of job does not accomplish satan's goal that's a spoiler alert in case you couldn't wait does not accomplish satan's goal so let's look at this suffering And I want to encourage us as we reflect on the losses of Job not to progress through this too quickly. I'll go ahead and read. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkey were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. We can read through a few verses rather quickly and not consider the weight of this experience. And in fact, the writer here doesn't even take much time. I think he imagines we can use our own imagination to, to consider the weight of what just happened. In, in verse 20, all it says is that, Then Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground. This is his, his grief his emotion being expressed out. In fact, one, one book of the Bible, one chapter of the Bible, Psalm 22, is, is a chapter I've gone to to read with those who are grieving and hurting and suffering. And, and I want to read David's description. He gives a bit more language to the emotions and the effects of what a tragedy like this could cause in our own bodies, As we go through them. And listen along as I read some of these verses from Psalm 22. Starts off in words that might be very familiar to us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouth at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And my strength, it's dried up like a pot, like my tongue is sticking to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil evildoers, evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Are you starting to be able to picture how devastating this most likely was to Job? Job's obviously not the only person who's experienced devastation. I imagine many of you have experienced devastation. Significant loss, suffering, and trials. David has here. And David, in this psalm, not only is talking about his own suffering, but we know he's actually also prophesying about the suffering of the Son of God. I'm sure you picked up on, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? That's what Jesus quotes in the Gospels as he's on the cross preparing to die. I'm sure you picked up on the pierced hands and the pierced feet, right, from our Savior, Are you starting to see trials, suffering, weren't just limited to Job. They're not just limited to you in your life. God saw it as something good and right to allow his own son, Jesus Christ, to experience. You are not alone in your suffering and in your persecution. God is there with you. And God was there with Job. And that is why I think we see the response ultimately that is portrayed here in Job. I left off the end of Job 20 because in Job chapter 1 verse 20 it goes on to say after he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground he worshipped. He's not denying the grief. He's not minimizing his pain and suffering. But he's not letting his circumstances dictate his desire to worship God. And he goes on to say, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So if we reflect on the loss of Job, there's a few points we can take on how or what We ought to do. So, first, we saw that Satan was accusing Job of, Satan was ultimately accusing Job of loving his possessions more than God. Do you see that? Job believed that if God removed his possessions, removed his relationships, he would no longer treasure God. So, he was elevating that possessions were more valuable than God in the eyes of Job. They're definitely more valuable in the eyes of Satan. And he's assuming that Job would agree with him. Also, when we look at how Job responds and we reflect upon his response, we notice an approach that we can also apply in the face of trials and suffering. Job worshipped God, he turned to God in his suffering, and he did not sin. See the strategy here? He worshipped God, he turned to God, and he did not sin. I can't keep a long list of things in my mind when I'm under persecution, trial, stress, anxiety, depression, but maybe two things I can remember. Worship God and do not sin. That's the example of Job here, and according to chapter 2, Job succeeded in this trial. But what I want to contrast this with is, is how we often do respond. Instead of worshiping God, instead of not sinning, we often turn inward and we focus on ourselves okay we focus on our own pain our own suffering we become become consumed with this inward perspective that leads us down a, a negative spiral we start to think of god perhaps as our enemy rather than as our good loving heavenly father right? we might start to think of others as our enemy Maybe we, we tra- tr- turn our attention away from ourselves and look at others. We might say, they're the enemy. They're the cause of my pain and suffering. It's the Chaldeans. It's the wind. I hate the wind now. Or I hate this others. Maybe, maybe we blame them. Maybe we blame someone personal in our life. Maybe we blame someone in our family. Maybe we compare ourselves. We have it so much harder than they do. They have such a better job I do they have such a better marriage their spouse is so much better than my spouse their children are so much better than my children we start to focus on others or we focus on ourselves but if we want to succeed in the trials that God permits we need to make sure we turn our focus to God he's the only one who will help to direct those strong emotions those thoughts and those actions towards something righteous rather than sinful So if you want to respond appropriately, we need to be able to worship God and not sin, then we focus on him. And that can be difficult because Job identifies the source of his losses as God himself. We saw it right there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. See, Job believes God is sovereign. And in sovereignty, Job knows that God controls all things. It's not Satan ultimately in control. Satan doesn't control the wind. God controls the wind. Satan doesn't control the fire from heaven. God controls the fire from heaven. Satan can't orchestrate armies from different nations to come together and to raid Job's provisions. God would have to do that. At the end of the day, and we're going to see this in chapter 2, God is ultimately in control. Job was made rich by God not because of his possessions or his relationships. Job was made rich by God because God gave himself to Job. And God considers himself far greater than our possessions or relationships. You remember his teachings in the New Testament? You ought to hate your family, hate your possessions, leave everything, follow me in comparison to to the greatness of God. And that's hard for us to understand. We're such limited, finite, you know, beings who engage with this physical world. It's hard for us to imagine things we can't touch, per se, as being greater than what we can. But God is trying to remind us and teach us, and he's using Job as an example to do so, that we might know these things and believe that God is good. So Job passes this first trial. He does not curse God. He remains faithful to God. What trials are you facing? How are you responding to them? Are we going to continue through our trials and not sin? What's hard is in Job 2, we find out that his success in chapter 1 in facing the trial is rewarded with a second trial. If you ever wondered whether you're the only one who gets hit one event after the other. And while you're still down, it feels like it's still raining on you. You're not the only one. Job is responding faithfully, and yet another trial comes. Now, there's a lot of parallels between chapter 1 and 2, and I'm not going to take the time to spend as much energy in chapter 2, but I, I do want to identify just a few elements here. Is first that Job's second trial involves physical affliction and abandonment. Satan is changing his strategy. The first few verses in Job 2 are very similar to that of what we read in Job 1. Again, God is calling Satan and the sons of God to himself. And again, he starts off with almost the exact same questions in chapter 2 as he had in chapter 1. Asking Satan, where were you? Where have you been? And have you considered my servant Job? But there's something that changes a little bit here in, in, in what we're observing, both upon Job and in, in this passage, is that in verse 3, it continues to say, after he reminds Job or Satan that Job has remained blameless, upright, and fears God and turns away from evil, even in light of the first trial they've given, it says he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him, To destroy him without reason. And that really stood out to me when I read that this past summer. Satan incited God to accomplish those things. When I was saying about God controls the wind, God controls the fire, Satan couldn't do those things. And here it's affirmed in scripture. Satan not only needed God's permission to execute this plan, this test, this trial in Job, Satan needed God's help. Satan wasn't powerful enough. Here we again see that God is sovereign. Job remains faithful in his character. We see God is still sovereign, and and maybe we're getting a better appreciation of God's sovereignty. And then what we'll see is, is Satan is still deceived, still not believing, and still being used ultimately for the purpose of God. And so with this second trial, we see these parallel observations that were reinforced in chapter 1. But I want to make some reflections on this loss as, as we wrap up chapter 2. One of these reflections that I want to make is that Satan is ultimately in his accusation. Now, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it here in verse 4. It says, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And so here what we're seeing is a new test, a new trial. Satan is ultimately believing, and if you're catching it, if you're following this, he's putting it in a hierarchy. Satan believes man, you, myself, cherishes our own health, our own life, more than our relationships and more than our possessions. Okay? That's what Satan believes. So in the second trial, he says... You know what? Job might cherish God more than possessions and relationships, but he does not. Satan is accusing Job of not cherishing God more than his own health and more than his life. And once again, what we're going to see is that Job, is, is that God is the one who brings about, who causes this physical affliction in Job's life. And we don't have time, as much time as I would have liked to, to give, to reflecting upon this. But one thing I want to encourage you to consider is that this is parallel to what we see in the gospel. You see, in Romans 3.23, it says that God presented Christ as an atoning sacrifice. Satan didn't put Jesus on the cross, just like Satan didn't ultimately execute these trials for Job. John 14, verses 30 through 31, says that the ruler of the world is coming, Satan, but he has no claim on me. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Consider that. Jesus willfully, because of his love for the Father, faithfully obeyed God, cherished God, valued his heavenly Father more than anything he had, more than his own life, just as we see demonstrated by Job here. You can start to see how Job is a lesson ultimately about God's love and mercy, God's sovereignty and his goodness. God is still good even when difficult things happen in our lives. If you're having a hard time understanding how God could be good and sovereign in your trials, I want to encourage you to dive into the book of Job, to wrestle with this content to talk with myself, Pastor Banks, Eric, or someone else. But how could God be good and allow these things to happen to Job? So we know in the story of Job, he breaks out with sores. In fact, we also see how his wife tells him to curse God. His wife is feeding into the agenda that Satan has claimed. Satan's agenda was curse God. And his wife is telling him, you ought to curse God and die. She believed he was going to die. Why are you holding out? Why are you remaining steadfast in your faith when God is allowing all of these things to occur? We won't get into the opportunity to look at Job's friends or the dialogue that they have or even even when Job is ultimately tested and and seen, ultimately demonstrating true faith in God and grows and is rewarded for his his faithfulness to the Lord. But what we will see here is is that as we come to the end of chapter 2, Job is still faithful and has still passed the second test. Because at the end of the chapter, we see that once again, that Job, if we look at uh, verse 10, he said, you speak, or I'm sorry, jump down towards the end of verse 10, it says that in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So in all of these trials, even under the temptation of his wife to curse God, he did not let us strive to worship God and not sin when we face various trials and testing even when they come at us intensely and I kind of wanted to wrap up the big idea this morning really from James James 5 11 says behold we consider those blessed who remain steadfast you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and and merciful, The apostle James looks back at the story of Job and Job's life and says Job and what happened to him is a testimony of God's compassion, is a testimony of God's mercy and an example of steadfastness. If you think Job ended up with the short end of the stick by the end of the chapter, you missed the whole purpose of the book. See, Job cherished God and was responsive and humbled by God. And at the end, he says that he saw God more clearly through his trials than he had ever seen God through his blessings. And he cherished knowing God more intimately in the midst of his trials than anything else he had ever possessed, than any other relationship he had ever had, because God was greater and better than everything else. Do we believe that? When we're being persecuted, if we do, it will help us to remain steadfast, focused on God, and worshiping Him in the midst of the trials. We must believe that God has not only given us the best thing, but He is the best thing. That's what Job believed.